0: We will be continuing on in the book of Colossians, chapter 1. And last week, we covered verses 15 through 20, where we looked at 10 reasons why Jesus is epically supreme, the one to which none can compare. And that was a grand uh, macro view of the supremacy of Christ. It's one of those passages that you just kind of awe and marvel at the majestic greatness of our Savior. And now in the portion of the text that we're going to look at today, um, we're going to kind of do one of those 75x zooms, you know, so going from the zoomed out to the zoomed in view. You know, if you've ever looked through a telescope at the moon or through a microscope at something, you know, it's tiny in a Petri dish, uh, we have a telescope at home that we like to put on a tripod and we'll point it up to the moon at times. And on a clear night, if if you look at the moon just with your eyes, it looks bright and white, you know, big round circle. But when you zoom in on it uh, through the telescope, you notice that you start seeing more details. You start seeing craters and rocks. You see that the edge of it is actually jagged uh, on its surface. It's not nice and round. And you only see those details when you zoom in on it. And so, uh, you know, last week, like I said, with verses 15 to 20, that gives us the zoomed-out picture of christ 's reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth, in the physical realm, the spiritual realm, making peace by the blood of his cross and now in verses twenty one to twenty three here we 're going to zoom in and we 'll see the reconciliation that he accomplished for us individually, personally, you know an epic transformation of of us who were uh, removed from Christ and are now reconciled to Christ and who now we are to be rooted uh, in our faith in Christ. These are going to be the three main points that we'll be covering today. So as you're turning in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, uh, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we, as we gather this morning, we just join with all of creation in praising your name. We declare your wondrous works, Lord. We rejoice in your wonderful deeds, All praise and glory be to you this morning, Father. Uh, Father, I thank you for all who are gathered here together this morning. I ask that you would open our ears uh, and our hearts to hear your word, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and encourage us, uh, convict us, and that you would edify your people, Father. We need your word, Lord. Guide our hearts as we consider these truths about the great sanctification we've received And may you receive all the glory, Father. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's read Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. It says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. So in the first message that I gave on Colossians back in April... We had ended in with verse 13, uh, with that great and glorious truth about our redemption. That we have redemption and our sins have been forgiven only because God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And then from there, Paul kind of stops talking about us completely, and instead he focuses on why Jesus could be that Redeemer. Why he was the only one that could be. Those ten glorious reasons why Jesus is supreme and his reconciliation of all things. And now we zoom back in and we see our own reconciliation that he accomplished. And it starts off with where we once were, removed from Christ. It says, and you who were once alienated. It says you. That's the believers at Colossae were once alienated. Not aliens, though I know some of you think, you know, you wonder, the person next to you, what planet they're from. Uh, but alienated. It's a way of saying separated or estranged. Um, and it's not a friendly separation. It's not, you know, it's not that honeymoon phase, you know, of marriage where four hours you've been apart and you just, oh, I can't wait till I see that person. No, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not that kind of separation. It's a hostile separation. It's a forcible separation. You know, think more of the Berlin Wall. It was a brute force concrete barrier erected during the Cold War to forcibly keep people in Soviet-controlled East Berlin from escaping to West Berlin. And it wasn't a nice little, you know, white picket fence with little yellow flowers. It was cold. It was an impassable barrier creating forcible separation. And here, when Paul says that you who were once alienated. He's saying that we were once separated, estranged from God. And here it's put in the past tense. It's what the Colossians, what all of us who are here, who are saved, were like before we met Christ. And it can be in the past tense, right? Because it comes on the heels of verse 20, which we studied in the text last week and concluded that there was a great and victorious reconciliation of all things, both in heaven and on earth, that took place when Jesus Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. And he is supreme because he is in obedience to the Father. He went to the cross, and in doing so, God reconciled to himself all things. He won the victory over all who were in rebellion against him. He secured the salvation of all who trust in Christ. Before we trusted in Christ, though, we were alienated, weren't we? We were estranged from God. That is the condition that we were born with. In Romans 5.12, it tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. From Adam until now, sin and death have been the condition that have been passed down to us. Generation after generation, a condition in which we were born. All men have sinned. None of us are exempt. And it is sin which incurs this alienation. Sin separates us from God. Why? Well, we know God to be holy. We know God to be pure, dwelling in unapproachable light. He is a good God. There's no imperfection found in him. There's no sin in his being, in his will, or in his acts. And our sin is an offense against a holy and righteous God. The big sins, the little sins, when the standard is perfection, which is no sin, then we've all fallen short. We were born in darkness, slaves to sin, you know, evil thoughts, evil intents proceeding from wicked hearts. And you see that alienation there. It's that separation between a holy, perfect God, and lost, sinful creatures. If you listen to how Ephesians chapter 4, verses 18-19 describes those who were alienated, or are alienated, it says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have, been, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is the condition that we were born into. It's the condition of all who have not been reconciled to God, darkened in their understanding of him, alienated from him, callous, greedy to practice every kind of evil. This alienation was not one that we could overcome on our own. It's not one that we could fix. There's no pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps to get out of this. And Paul says here that those who are alienated are hostile in mind. Hostile is a strong word, isn't it? It's not just unfriendly, but it's antagonistic. It's an enemy. It's someone who is in direct opposition against you. You know, Loud and I have spoken at various times with people that we've met, and we know that they don't know Jesus. And sometimes we're prone to describe them as good people, right? Or they have a good heart. You know, oh, they're so naturally kind and loving or good with volunteering, giving to charities, working in their community, right? We all know people like this. Uh, people who don't really seem that bad, don't come across as hostile to God. You know, Maybe they're just indifferent, uh, maybe even considered part of the, the good people in our society. But well, if we get a reality check on that, Romans chapter 1 gives us a more apt and lengthy description of the good people that we know. Listen to how Romans describes this. It's a, it's a little long, but um, it's a, a good description of these good people. It says starting in verse 21 For although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves heartless, ruthless, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. This is what it means to be hostile in mind, not giving honor or thanks to God, futile in their thinking, not wise but foolish, not acknowledging God, debased minds filled with all manner of evil. And this is descriptive of the good people in our society just as much as it is of those sitting in prisons across our country. These mindsets that we see in our society today, like I can do whatever I want with my body and you can't tell me that it's wrong. Or I can believe whatever I want to believe and so can you, but don't tell me that there's any absolute truth. We see these mindsets among the educated, right? But it's not wisdom, it's foolishness. And we see these mindsets among the good people. These mindsets are hostile because they are not rooted in truth. Therefore, they're not of Christ. And Romans 8, 7 tells us that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. You know, it might be a newsflash to some, but you don't have to hate God to be hostile to him, do you? So... A mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. That mind that doesn't submit to him or his law is hostile to him. It's hostile to God. And what do we see that hostile minds lead to? It says, hostile, debased, evil minds, and evil thoughts and intents lead to evil actions. It's doing evil deeds. It's a natural cause and effect, isn't it? A mind that's hostile to God thinks evil, which leads to evil actions. You know, in software programming, there's a logical expression called a while loop. And we won't get technical, but it simply means that while something is true, a set of actions will continue to be performed until that something is no longer true. A simple, non-technical example could be our recent visits to the beach. You know, while we're at the beach with the kids, what do we do? We play in the sand, we get hot, get tired, bath time in bed, right? And then the next day, are we still at the beach? True, okay? So we're going to repeat that. Play in the sand, get hot and tired bath, time, in bed, right? And then the next day, are you still at the beach? False. No, we're going to go home. So now we can move on to other actions, pack up, get gas, get on the road, those types of things. And here in Colossians 121, that is the type of loop that those who are alienated and hostile in mind are in. So alienated and hostile in mind, true. Evil deeds, evil deeds, evil deeds. Are you still alienated and hostile in mind? True, evil deeds, In fact, that series of evil deeds that is constantly being looped is described in Ephesians chapter 2. In verses 1 through 4, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is the loop that we were born into: dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, living according to the passions of the flesh, the desires of the of hostile minds. And many people have tried to escape this loop on their own. Haven't they? They try to improve their actions. I mean, just look at how many self help videos and programs or Coaches are out there for exactly this reason, right? Uh, some people just try to avoid the really bad sins. You know, some have gone to extremes. If you think of like a monk in an abbey taking a vow of silence or celibacy. Some have turned to organized religion, enlightenment, accountability groups. You know, they, some try to offset their, their evil actions with good ones. Um, all of these things, though, they, they address the actions, but not the root cause. And ultimately, they will always come up short, won't they? The, e- the answer to evil actions is to not just stop doing them. That wild loop of sin is still going to be persisting. And more evil actions will continue to flow until that loop is ended. But you know what? We know how that loop has ended, don't we? Praise God. In Colossians 1.22, it says, And you, he has now reconciled. Before we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but now he has reconciled us. He has provided an exit to that loop. If we, thinking back to verses 15 through 20, you know, we looked at that big picture of reconciliation, the restoration of all things, all things in heaven, on earth, all enemies, all creation, reconciled by the blood of Christ. And now, here as we zoom in, Our detail-level transitions from the reconciliation of all things to the reconciliation needed in our own lives. Lives that were alienated from God, from, from our sin. Lives that lived with hostile minds and evil deeds, lost in sin. And you, it says, you who were once alienated. He is now reconciled. Praise God, you know. Us in our sin, alienated from a holy God, now reconciled and brought together, that relationship restored. You know, verse 21 is about us, you who were once alienated. But verse 22 is about him. He has reconciled us. And I hope that we never lose our amazement and our gratitude and our worship to him for that absolutely astounding act. We have been reconciled to an awesome and mighty God. Praise God that we have been reconciled to God. Reconciliation is difficult, isn't it? When two parties are at odds, it can be tough to come to terms, come to an agreement, difficult to resolve the blockage in that relationship. Reconciliation requires humility, doesn't it? If both parties are immovable in their position, holding on to that one thing that is separating them, then restoration isn't going to happen. It takes humility. I mean, we certainly need humility to accept our need for a savior, right? To accept that we can't get to heaven on our own, to submit to the authority of the Lord and come to faith. But the humility of Christ to achieve our reconciliation was far, far greater. The Lord of the universe coming down from heaven's glory, lowering himself to take the form of physical man so that he could physically sacrifice himself for our reconciliation. And how did he accomplish this? It says, In his body of flesh, by his death, Christ, the King of glory, came to earth as a man, took on flesh, took on the form of a human, and living a perfect, sinless life, he then gives it up, dying a dreadful death on the cross. And that death, that sinless, perfect sacrifice, is what brought us reconciliation. It's through the blood of Christ alone that our sins were paid for by the one who had no sins of his own to pay for. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read part of this earlier as an assurance of pardon. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, The righteousness of god you know god through christ through the death of his body of flesh reconciled us to himself in christ god reconciled the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and now we are tasked right as it says here as ambassadors for christ to appeal to others be reconciled to god we implore you it says be reconciled to god We can be tasked with this message of reconciliation only because of the power of the gospel. It says in verse 21 there, For our sake he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You can't stop doing evil deeds on your own. You can't get to heaven by doing more good than bad. You can't search until you have found enlightenment to stop being hostile in mind. But if you hear that message of reconciliation, God has reconciled to him, us to himself. He brought restoration to our broken, severed relationship with him because he knew no sin. He took on our sins. He paid for them in his body on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that is how the wild loop is ended. The alienation, the hostile mind, Those are no longer true for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now we who are in Christ are in a state of reconciliation. The relationship between God and man has been restored. And now we are presentable to God, and we will be presented to God. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, it says. What an epic transformation. From alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, to being holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. We will be presented to God one day, and on that day, he won't see our sins. He won't see our previous hostility, all the evil deeds that we've accrued. He'll see us covered by the blood of the Lamb, and we will be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach because of Christ. Praise God. Because of Christ, we are holy. We are now positionally holy. We have been designated for good, selected as vessels for honorable use. We are now found in Christ and no longer slaves to sin and to live out selfish desires. We are set apart. And ultimately, our holiness will be complete when we reach glory. But we are to daily increase in holiness as well as we mature in our faith, right? If you have accepted Christ, do you know that you are holy? You know, why is it important that we are holy? What are the implications? Well Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Without holiness no one will see the Lord. Think about that. First Peter four one, fourteen to sixteen says As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are called, commanded to be holy. We are no longer to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. We are to strive and grow in holiness because our Lord is holy. Because of Christ, we are also blameless and above reproach. Our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. And now we are found to be without disgrace. We are found pure. We are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And now there is no blame attributed to us. We are found without fault. And this is how we will be presented to the Father. Isn't that amazing? We should and can be now living lives filled with good works. We can live in a way that is honoring to the Lord, worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, as we read earlier in Colossians chapter 1. And it's because of our reconciliation and in light of the fact that we are no longer enemies of God. This is an epic transformation. And it's important that we remember how lost we really were and how far from how far Christ had to go for our reconciliation. And now, as we consider what awaits us in glory ahead. Doesn't that just make you marvel at the mercy of God? And that's, you know, this is exactly what Paul highlights when he describes this epic transformation uh, to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2. listen to this. It's it's the same type of transformation that we see here. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 7, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You notice how parallel that passage is, a wonderful passage. You who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, sons of disobedience, living out the, past, uh, the passions of the flesh. But God, rich in mercy, because of his great love, made us alive together with Christ. He reconciled us. And it's by grace that we have been saved. And now, he has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places and will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace for all eternity to come at some point in the in the in the future we will be presented before god as holy, blameless, above reproach sons and daughters of god. and as sons and daughters of god, paul goes into the manifestation or the proof of the transformation that has been taken that has taken place. he says continue on here in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If indeed you continue in the faith. Now it seems Paul is qualifying the reconciliation with the condition that it's based on if they continue in the faith. So if they don't continue in the faith, does that mean that they can lose their salvation? Because it it seems that Paul is saying that we will be presented holy and blameless before God if we continue in the faith. Well, let's be clear here. The Bible does not teach that you can lose your salvation. It is secured by the blood of Christ. And if you thought that you could lose your salvation, then this is great news for you today. You cannot lose it. He has saved all who come to faith in him, brought us into reconciliation with the Father. And Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw to God through Draw near to God through him, he is able to save to the uttermost if you 're not sure that that 's true, just look think back to last week with verses fifteen through twenty those ten reasons why Jesus is supreme, why he has the power, the authority, the status, and ultimately is our redeemer, only he could provide salvation, and only he did provide salvation and Jesus was clear in John chapter ten. When he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Who could ever steal away our salvation from the one who is the greatest? No one. No one. So what is Paul saying here with this, if indeed? Well, he's saying that the evidence of their salvation, of their reconciliation, is the steadfast clinging to the gospel, to their faith. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, he is now reconciled in order to present you holy and blameless as evidenced by your continuation in the faith, shown in how you aren't shifting away from the gospel. You know, it says you continue in your faith, continuing on in your faith, remaining to it, remaining committed to it, clinging to it. These are indicators of genuine faith, proof that your conversion was real. You know, Lauda and I claim to be soccer fans. You know, Orlando City is our our home team, and we're big fans of that. And you know that because we're watching the matches, uh, we're following the team, we know the players, we know the scores, who's injured, who's away on international duty we 've done this for years uh, ever since we became fan of the club and now if we had just gone to a few matches in the beginning bought some jerseys learned a couple songs and then you know never followed them after that during those first couple years of following them it'd be hard to tell us apart from the real fans we you could you wouldn't really be able to tell a difference but you know after time after as time went on it'd become more apparent that we weren't keeping up with the club. It'd be noticeable that we don't know who the players are on the team or who they're playing that week, right? We could call ourselves fans, but we wouldn't really be fans at that point, would we? And our faith is kind of like that, isn't it? Many people make professions for Christ, but over time it will show through whether they are continuing in the faith, stable and steadfast, holding to it, or if they're holding on to a false profession, a pretense, and in time the continuation of that faith is no longer there. Sometimes it comes out that the profession isn't based on the finished work of Christ, you know, complete and powerful enough to save the lost, but rather on their own works, on their own good deeds. That isn't the good news of the gospel of the faith to which we hold. You know, Ephesians tells us that it is by the grace of God that we've been saved, not of our own works, but as the gift of God. And sometimes it comes out after a profession that it was based on emotion, right? It could be based on emotion. There's, you know, preachers and evangelists out there who love to generate emotionally charged services, right? They stir up that emotion to a frenzy so you have this strong emotional experience. But later on, over time, That emotional high comes down. And it's then evident that there was really no heart change that ever took place. You remember what Jesus told the crowds in Matthew 7. He said, Not everyone who says to me, me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in, in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There will be some that have even done mighty works in the name of God, it said. Led churches, quoted scripture. But in the end, they did it for themselves. Or they did it without faith in the one who did it all for them. Continue on in the faith, church. Be stable and steadfast in the faith. This idea of stable and steadfast. I think about if you ever stood up in a a kayak or a little V-bottomed boat. You know, are they stable? No. I mean, they move side to side with the littlest movement. You know, every gust of wind. But you think about: Have you ever been on a pontoon? They just sit there. You can eat your lunch, hang out with your family. You could race back and forth on the deck with another person, and. You're not going to turn into Gator Bites. You're just It's stable. It's there, you know? And that's what our faith should be. It should be stable. It should be rooted, grounded in the steadfast, finished, completed, victorious work of Christ. When he hung on the cross, you know, his body broken, bleeding, he cried out what? It is finished. The work completed. The victory won. That salvation secured for all who would trust in him. And that is just one of the many admonishments in the New Testament to remain stable, to be steadfast, to stand firm in the faith. Why do you think that is? It's because we're, we're susceptible to not remaining steadfast. We're susceptible to fall away, to not stand strong. And so we are encouraged here to do so. It's an admonishment to stand in the faith. You know, our men's group um, we love the, the verse from First Corinthians sixteen thirteen. Don't we? Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. We, it's an admonition there to stand firm in the faith. In Philippians four one, after Paul gets done reminding the believers that their citizenship is in heaven and that they have a hope awaiting us by the power of Him who is everything, to whom everything is subject. He says there therefore my my brothers whom I long I love and long for my joy and crown stand firm in the Lord my beloved stand firm in the Lord 1 Corinthians 15:58 we're commanded to simply be steadfast because Christ has already won the victory hasn't he therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Don't waver in your faith. Be steadfast. Don't be swayed by various waves of teachings that promote anything other than the true gospel to which we hold. That's why Paul continues on by saying here, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you, that you have heard. Paul tells us that genuine faith is not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Don't ever move from that. Don't shift from that. The gospel is our core, central belief. It's what we are firmly rooted to. It's the only message that gives us hope, any hope, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, redeeming the lost, the broken, reconciling us to himself. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is of first importance. It is the foundation to everything that we believe. And we need to be careful that we don't shift from that gospel, to not allow ourselves to be persuaded by Other messages that dilute the gospel or add or remove from the gospel. You know, there are many teachers, um, preachers, podcasts, sermons, books that will present all sorts of manners of teachings, and they don't all align with the gospel. We need to be careful. We need to know our Bibles. We need to know what the Word of God says. We need to be careful that we don't allow society or politics, shifting morality or social agendas to be that lens through which we see gospel truth because we'll come away with a shifted view, an altered view. We must instead view those things through the gospel and then we will remain steadfast and stable. Cling to the gospel, church. May it ever be central to our lives. It's powerful. It's impactful. It's being proclaimed in all creation under heaven. It's free and available to all. And once we were stuck in that muck of sin, that continual loop, but a great men took place, our reconciliation. And now we see the manifestation of that great work through our continued uh, continuation and adherence to our faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which we've received. So, in closing here, you know we were removed from Christ. Let me ask you, are you still removed from Christ? Are you still alienated from Him? Have you trusted Him as your Lord and Savior, asking Him for pardon for the sins you've committed against a holy and righteous God? Have you trusted in the complete and finished work of the sacrifice of Christ as the only way by which we can be saved? His blood shed to pay the penalty due for our sins and thus sealing our pardon and securing our salvation. If you haven't, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Romans ten nine and 10 offers a wonderful truth. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you've never done this and would like to, see me after service or any of the other leaders here, and we would love to pray with you. And if you are no longer removed from Christ, but you have been reconciled to him, then let me ask you first, are you marveling at the great reconciliation that has taken place to secure your salvation? Are you filled with gratefulness, gratitude, and worship for that? And second, be encouraged that you will be presented holy and blameless before the Lord. Let this fill you with a great hope, a great peace. And also, it can act as a reminder that we need to strive for holiness, to be growing in holiness, to prioritize our walk with the Lord. We are a holy people. We are to be growing in holiness. We're not to be stagnant in that, are we? And one day, we will eventually be presented before him as holy and blameless. And lastly, number three, are you rooted in Christ? Are you committed and continuing in your faith? Or are you wavering in it? Are you as dedicated and committed to Christ as you once were? when you were first saved. If you were truly saved, then you are still saved, and there is grace for you, and you can come to him in repentance and cling to the gospel, to the hope that we have in Christ. Your faith is so important to him. It's so important. Hebrews reminds us that without faith, it is impossible to please him. He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Be diligent in that. Are you steadfast, grounded, and rooted in your faith? You know, don't give in to other teachings, other agendas, other worldly ideologies that saturate our communities. Be grounded in your faith. Read the word so that you might hold firm to the hope that we have in the gospel. As we reminded, it's of first importance, isn't it? The gospel is good news, brothers and sisters that Christ died for those who were removed from God and alienated, and he brought about our reconciliation, salvation to all who believe, and now we are to remain rooted and grounded in our faith to the honor and glory of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.